Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. In this episode, I sit down with Joel Marsh, author of UX for Beginners. We talk about how to get started with design, design's relationship with science, and the design and tech scenes in Sweden. Enjoy the show. Today, I'm here with Joel Marsh, who's a designer and author of UX for Beginners and keeper of the UX Crash Course site. Joel, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start off with you sharing a little bit about yourself, your background, your work experience, and why you became a designer. Okay. Originally, I am from Canada. I live in Stockholm, Sweden now, but I, I'm sort of born and raised in Canada. And uh, I went to school to be an art director originally and uh, became a UX designer as a sort of natural shift through my career. Originally, though, uh, I became a designer originally because I was uh, a musician. So I, I played in uh, bands for a long time and I was a drummer, a percussionist. Uh, I took music in university, even though I was in university for computer science, music were, were my electives and all that. But So I was playing in bands and when you're in a band that plays shows at uh, clubs and things like that, bands need posters. And uh, so I was the guy that ended up making the posters for the band. And then uh, after after a while, I, I, you know, the, the posters became a very engaging thing the more shows we played. Uh, so we were doing uh, about 50 shows a year uh, in the, the last, at the sort of peak there, and that meant 50 posters a year uh, at least. And then I was doing the website as well, and we had a logo and a font, and we had a we were we even had a custom cocktail that we served at shows. So the whole the, the marketing strategy and all the design and everything around the bands became uh, equally engaging uh, as the music for me. And at, at a certain point, I had to choose whether I wanted to be a professional musician or a professional designer. Uh, I, and I, I made the right choice, I would say. Um, but uh, yeah, so that was that was kind of how I got into it. And then I freelanced in Canada for a few years. And uh, eventually, I wanted to move on to bigger and cooler clients. And uh, so I sold all my stuff and moved to Sweden. Nice. So you've worked for um, startups and you've worked for, for large companies. Can you talk about your experiences with both and how they're, they're the same and different? Uh, sure. And uh, I think, I think uh, it's, it's worth mentioning agencies in there, too. It's sort of a middle ground between mm-hmm. startups and big companies. Uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of difference, differences. Uh, the, the, one obvious one is just the resources that those companies have. When you're in a really big company compared to something like a startup, uh, big companies tend to have a lot of people, a lot of time, a lot of money, so that you just you you think in a different way. I might even say that in a big company, it's easy to be lazier, uh, and not in a good way, uh, but just the the natural uh, thought mm-hmm. process. You tend to go to like paid advertising and marketing and that kind of you know channels. Like those are the first things to come to mind because they're the easiest. Whereas in a in a startup. Uh, you have no people and no time and no money, uh, so you're you're trying to build the, the quickest thing or the best thing you can in a very short period of time with uh, yeah very limited resources. So you think smaller, you think free, you think cheap, you think mm-hmm. like virality and stuff like that, and social media and how can you use things and uh, it's harder. But it's one of the things that's really surprising, and this was uh, I, I experienced this as a freelance designer as well with clients that didn't have very much money. Is that when you really sit down and push yourself to think of solutions you can do without a lot of money, uh, a lot of the time you come up with things that uh, are very good, and those solutions tend to be you don't even talk about those in a big company. But okay, so there's I'm sort of rambling a little bit now. So resources is one of the big differences. Uh, I would say that the speed of work and the, the depth of the work are very different. So in a, in a startup, you're going very quickly and you 
uh, work on something over a long period of time. In a large company, it tends to be kind of the same. Startups and large companies are both in-house teams. Um, mm-hmm. But if you work as a consultant or at an agency, a lot of the time, you're not working on the same thing for over a period of years. You're working on a bunch of smaller things. So you, you build a site or an app or whatever. And as far as your project is concerned, you're only working on it for three to six months and then you're done. Or if it's a campaign, then it's over. Um, and so in that sense, you get a lot more variety of projects, and but it's a lot more short-term thinking. Whereas on, in an in-house team, you're thinking about this version and the next version, and you can plan out features over a period of months or years even. Uh, and you can you know you're going to get a chance to evaluate what you've made and then do another version based on what you learn. Uh, so that is a huge difference in, in thinking. A lot of the time in an agency, you don't even get to see version two, if there is even a version two. Uh, so that's a lot different. So thinking... Thinking short-term and thinking long-term is a completely different way of working. And I think that it's really good. I usually recommend that designers, um, when they're starting their career, try to get jobs at a few different places that way. And if you only work at startups or if you only work on in-house teams and huge mature companies, you don't learn the full discipline of design, I would say, because you just don't get to see those things that make you think in different ways. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Great advice. Um, so you, your book is, is uh, based on the UX Crash Course site. Can you talk a little bit about why you started it? Uh, yeah. So I, when I was, working, I was working at an agency and I was the head of UX there. Uh, and it was, a, it was a good agency with lots of big clients and lots of projects happening at once. But uh, there weren't that many UX, weren't that many people doing UX in the agency specifically. So it meant that I had my hands in a lot of different projects at the same time. Um, and I found that uh, working across a lot of projects and a lot of clients, that a lot of the same types of questions were either being asked to me from the clients or the clients were asking the project managers and the project managers were eventually coming to me. So I was hearing a lot of the same types of questions over and over. And I thought it would be a good opportunity to uh, educate both the clients and my colleagues at the same time. So I started like a weekly email newsletter just within the company. And every week I would take one basic idea in UX that I was getting asked about all the time and explain it. And it's like, it was just a short email length lesson. Mm-hmm. And it, it was all, I mean, I was sending it out only to people that weren't UX designers. So I tried to make it funny and easy and all that. Uh, and they were, I was actually pretty surprised at how well they were received at the time. A lot of people liked them and they would discuss them. And after I had sent out that newsletter, uh, I sent it out on Fridays. And af- after a few weeks of sending it out, we started to have people outside the agencies. Like, so, so colleagues had forwarded it to clients mm-hmm. or whoever, and then they had forwarded it. So people started asking if there was some way that they could subscribe or get on a mailing list. And it, it wasn't a mailing list. It was just me sending, you know, to, to all at theagency.com. Uh, and uh, so eventually it became a thing where I thought it would just be easier if I made it into a blog instead of a newsletter. And that's how the site was born. So then, uh, but I left that agency not long after that, and it sort of killed my source of material. So I, I started looking around uh, in UX forums to see what the common questions were. And the huge question that was around all the time was, how do I get started in UX? So I did a series of lessons about that and put it on Hacker News, and it was on the front page for 24 hours, and the rest was history. Right. The magic begins. Yeah. 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 Well, it's fun. I mean, it, I mean, for, for somebody not from a design background, I find just the bite-sized chunks of what you're, it's very easy to kind of dip in and out of, 
Um, it's sort of the world we live in, I think. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, given your experiences working at agencies and startups and, and large companies, what are some of the biggest mistakes you see designers making? Uh, I think that uh, there are two kinds of, of big mistakes, <clears throat> uh, if you want to think of it like that. The two flavors, I suppose. Uh, there are mistakes that have huge consequences, and those are definitely big mistakes. Uh, but there are also mistakes that that are repeated really often, so that mm-hmm. uh, each, the consequences of each of those might not be that big. But if you do it a hundred times over your career, you're actually kind of leaving damage in your wake. Uh, so there. Are, some examples of, of mistakes that have big consequences would be something like in discussion, assuming the user is motivated to use whatever you design. So there are lots of, I hear this almost every day, where somebody will start a conversation with something like, okay, so the user clicks the call to action button and then blah, blah, blah. Uh, mm-hmm. and, but that part, the getting the user to click the button, on, like on a landing page or something, that's the hard part. That's what That's one of the big things that UX designers are always trying to solve. So when you just assume that that is true and then continue on, you might actually be killing the product because you haven't taken any time to build in a reason for them to do the thing you want them to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that can have big consequences. Um, another one is uh, like believing that redesigning a product means changing the style. So like if Apple releases new new uh, style guidelines or if Google puts out material design or, or whatever, um, there are a lot of designers that think that when you say redesigning a product, you mean changing the style to match the new guidelines. And even if the features and things don't change, it doesn't, a product doesn't get better or worse, uh, depending on the style. It might make a few more people, uh, you know, think that the screenshots are good in the app store, but it doesn't actually change the effect of the product. Uh, and a lot of the time, uh, designers will just blindly follow those guidelines and start taking away things they need. Um, another one would be, um, it's very tempting to, to treat user stories, like to start with user stories when you're trying to design things and then treat those user stories as the only things that could ever happen in your design. Uh, you're, you're not really supposed to use user stories like that. It's actually the designer that's supposed to use user stories as a way to explain to developers or other people like how the user would move through a product. But if you start the whole design process by naming some of the things you want users to be able to do, then really you're you're kind of ignoring the whole system of features and you're just talking about a, a couple of things in a line and it doesn't really create a, a good product. So you might design something that does those things but misses a bunch of the other huge elements in, in user experience design. And then sort of on that note, just not knowing why you're designing a feature. There are, <laughs> there are features all the time that I see. They just exist because the competitor app has the feature like that or because you saw it on Twitter or something like that. So having features existing because no, for no reason at all, it just adds clutter and makes users get lost and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, those features often come from the marketing department. Um, <laughs> the, the, those are all things that have big consequences. The other type is mistakes that happen really often. And those, are, those seem little, but they, they add up. So like copying famous sites because they're famous uh, a lot of designers assume that a site like Twitter uh, very meticulously designs and tests every little piece of everything they put on their site. And therefore, if you copy it, it works. But that's wrong. There's loads of things on every website and every app in the world that have never been tested and are based on assumptions or were designed by a committee or the CEO thought it was a great idea or whatever. Uh, and then just because the app gets famous, designers start copying it. That's actually called a halo effect, if you want to when, when somebody does one thing good, so you assume everything else they do is good. 
Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Trying to force users to do things uh, instead of motivating them to do things is a little bit common mistake. Thinking that clutter means text uh, or, or thinking that you're simplifying something because you hide a lot of stuff. Uh, like putting a menu behind a hamburger menu icon is mm-hmm. a super common method and it makes things look better because you're taking away all the stuff, but it makes it much harder to use because you can't see the menu and you forget it's there. Uh, engagement is, I've never seen any study that said that putting a hamburger menu makes something more effective. Uh, I've seen lots of studies that say it makes it less effective. Mm-hmm. So you might actually be destroying your menu. Um, and there's a, a very common trend on the internet right now, doing something once and then believing that now you're qualified to teach other people how to do it. And that, and a lot of the time, the, the thing you did once is actually one of these other mistakes. Uh, so that what ends up happening is you, you get a lot of people that don't have that much experience teaching a lot of other people who have slightly less experience. And then you have these myths and bad practices and stuff just, just going everywhere on the internet. So that's a little mistake, but it affects thousands of people. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you note in a talk that you gave that UX is design plus science. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Uh, Sure. That was from a talk called uh, Design as a Science. And there were a couple of points in there. When people think of science, they often think that it's not very creative, and that's uh, wrong. The first part of that talk began with stating that there are two types of creativity. One is creative expression, which is what feels really good to you as the designer, and we usually call that art. And then there's creative problem solving. And creative expression is all about possibilities, and creative problem solving is all about restrictions. You have to work within the rules or within the requirements or whatever. And problem solving is, the word we usually use for that is design. So expression is art, problem solving is design. And so if design is, uh, yeah, if you're not solving problems, you're not, not doing design. So if you... Take that next to science. Science is a process that was created in the first place uh, as a way to study problems that we don't understand yet. So it it has, or I defined it with five basic steps. You you need to try to find the question. So you just look at all the information you have and figure out what you want to ask or or a problem. You try to find a problem. Uh, So then the second step is to form a hypothesis, which is like, why does this problem exist? Or what are the possible answers? The third step is to make a prediction. So if your answer is right or if your solution is correct, what do you expect to happen and what are you going to measure to to see if that happens? Mm-hmm. And then you uh, design an experiment to test your, your idea and then you analyze your results. The, the word design actually came from science in the beginning. It was designing experiments was the original use of the word design. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if as designers, if we're trying to solve a problem but the problem is all about the users, so we don't fully understand it yet, then user experience is solving a problem we don't understand. So then the process of UX is basically design and science together. That's fantastic. Um, where did you, I mean, what, what made you dig into that as a topic? I'm curious. Uh, I use the scientific method all the time. Uh, and through discussions with a lot of other designers, uh, I thought it was more common than it, than it really is. So there isn't uh, a lot of understanding about how the scientific process works, and it's a perfect match for user experience. Uh, it works in every project and every company, and uh, it's super useful. But the uh, a lot of things in user experience, or user experience design, I could say, is different than a lot of other kinds of designs because we can measure and prove things. Mm-hmm. And when you when you have this uh, constant process where you're making things and testing them, 
uh, over time, you start to realize that there are things that are objectively true about design. And a lot of people, a lot of designers talk about design uh, in terms of what they like or what's trendy or, mm. um, you know, what's your favorite or what are you into and all that kind of stuff. And in user experience design, none of that matters at all because it either works or works better or it doesn't. Um, and when you start to collect up a bunch of things that are objectively true and always get better results in the tests and uh, whatever, you start forming kind of a mental model uh, in your head of, of the way people interact with anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when kind of principles and I don't know if I'll call them laws or not, but uh, when, when there are a bunch of principles that are really reliable like that and that describe behavior in general, it starts getting a lot closer to a science where you can predict what people are going to do even though you've never actually seen that kind of a product or you've never, that product has never existed before. You can mm-hmm. predict how people are going to do things or whether this option is going to be better than this option uh, just because you understand the model. That's very, it's a very scientific way of thinking about uh, creating products and things, but it's not that common. So it makes a good topic of discussion. Awesome. Very cool. Um, so you also wrote um, UX involves a lot of self-motivated thinking, and that, that kind of grabbed my attention. I'd like for you to talk a little bit about what you mean by that and what role you think education plays in the learning path of designers. So, okay, so there's, there's kind of two questions in there. Um, the uh, user, experience is, user experience design, as the UX designer, you are constantly in a process of trying to find problems and then trying to solve those problems. Uh, and there's nobody, nobody gives you the answer. Nobody points at the problem and says, here, solve this. Or that can happen, but a lot of the time it's you finding the problem. Uh, a lot of the time it's problems that nobody's ever seen before or in products that nobody's ever made before. And that it, there's a lot of uncertainty and there isn't a lot of, uh, there's often not, no, no resource to go to to, look up the answer or anything like that so uh, in that sense it's very self-motivated all the time and uh, mm-hmm. if you as a ux designer if you sit at your desk and don't find problems there's nothing to do because uh, <laughs> that's all that's all you are is a problem finder and solver uh, so in the in terms of self-motivated thinking that's that's what user experience is when you when you compare that to uh, a traditional type of education it couldn't be more different than the way a school tends to work. So mm-hmm. normal, I mean, there's probably, there's de- well, there's definitely exceptions to this in, in the world, but a normal school, you show up, they give you the book, the book has all the answers in it, uh, you read the book, you practice the question, the, the types of questions you're going to get, and then you get a, a test where you basically have to repeat back all the answers or repeat the information from the book onto into questions or fill in the blanks or whatever it's going to be. Um, mm-hmm. or, or sometimes it's the professor's perspective on things that you need to learn or, or something like that. Uh, and in a, in a traditional education setting, the, the professor or the, the teacher, sometimes they, they are the one that, you know, they'll read an essay and they decide how good it is. Uh, but all of that, none of that uh, works in UX. UX just doesn't work like that. There's no answers. There's no book. Uh, your boss can't tell you whether you're right or not. That's kind of the, the whole reason a UX design role exists is because the designers and, the, and your colleagues and bosses and whatever, you did, sometimes you don't know uh, how it's going to work out, so you have to give it to real users and see what happens. So in that sense, traditional education is not 
I don't think it's necessary to be a good designer. I think that if you have a great teacher or if you go to a school that understands that that's not how UX design works, so you get to do lots of real projects with real problems, that could be super valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of courses online that are a good a good start. I think that there are lots of, uh, a little bit self-serving here now, I guess, but there are lots of books where you can mm-hmm. sort of read about all the fundamental ideas and kind of how the whole thing is put together. Uh, but ultimately, if you uh, want to be a good designer, you have to be willing to learn a lot yourself, uh, and you have to be you have to do a lot of design. The only way to be a good designer is to design. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. I mean, I, you know, it's interesting that you say that the course is online because we are starting to see more and more project based um, training pop up. Yeah. Um, whether it be in traditional schools or online. And it's, I think it's an answer to, there are whole disciplines in the real world where the only way to learn it is, is to do projects. And even with projects in, in a typical school, you need to have some real scenario. Because if you're just faking it and then the teacher is deciding what's better, you still didn't learn anything because you didn't make anything. Mm-hmm. It's not real. And I think it's all it's all the weirdness that you see in, with real users in real life and when you've designed the thing and then put it out in the world and people do something with it you didn't expect. And I mean, that's that's sort of the, the process over and over for your whole life. But eventually, you, you know, you, you pick up a lot of experience mm-hmm. from that and start to be able to understand or, or predict or, or know when you don't know, which is valuable too. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you're so you're based in lovely Sweden. I want to hear a little bit about what the design community is like in Sweden and how um, how it's unique. Uh, Sweden actually has an amazing design community, uh, the whole and tech in general. Uh, that was the original reason why I why I moved here. Uh, I didn't there wasn't anything. I had no connections to Sweden. I had never been to Europe before I moved here. Literally the first time I put my feet on Europe was when wow. I arrived in Sweden to live here. Um, and uh, I could have moved, in theory, I could have moved anywhere uh, when I decided. I considered a few other places. But uh, the year that I moved here, I think it was 7 out of 10 of the top uh, digital agencies in the world were in Stockholm. So it just sort of, that was why I came here. But uh, now that I've been here for a long time, that that design and the, and the tech quality is really high. And it goes through a lot of different disciplines I and mean, there's clothing and furniture and you know branding and advertising and products and and like synthesizers and whatever there's there's a whole lot of very well designed and good tech thinking that's happening here. and if you consider the fact that the population of sweden is about a quarter of california uh, the the influence that sweden has in the world uh, is very disproportionate it's much bigger than it it should be um sweden is super trend sensitive like in the world, Sweden is often one of the first to, to hop on something, and uh, new new tech becomes normal and mainstream really quickly. Um, there's a disproportionate number of Swedes in a lot of online communities. Uh, Dribble has a lot of Swedes in the like ranking among the most followed. Uh, Reddit is a lot of Swedes. Uh, on Reddit, you'll see a disproportionate amount of news about Sweden for that reason. <laughs> um, I think it's good for Sweden's brand. Uh, <laughs> If you look at the number of billion-dollar companies and the amount of money that's going into tech investments, uh, Sweden represents way more of that money than the population should mm-hmm. uh, as a percentage. So it's it's very good. There was a, a study last year that puts uh, Stockholm number two behind Silicon Valley in the world for for startup scenes. Uh, that's debatable, but it, it at least means it's pretty high. Yeah. 
then like digital life here, one of the advantages for as a digital type of designer is that uh, a lot of digital tech goes mainstream here really, really quickly. Like we, we can pay taxes with a text message um, and preschools. Uh, my girlfriend is a preschool teacher. Like preschools have apps of their own for the parents. So that's really common. And that's, mm. that's a state funded preschool. So that's not, I'm not talking about private like daycare or anything like that. That's a college educated preschool for free. Uh, but, and then uh, they, people are predicting that Sweden will be the first uh, cashless society. Hmm. relatively soon uh, but like Skype and Spotify and Pirate Bay they're all from here and those those were all pretty normal here before they, they really went uh, global in a proper sense and uh, I remember in 2008 I did a freelance project for Sony BMG from here it was the American Sony BMG but uh, I was working from here and they tried to pay me with a corporate check and <laughs> when, I, when I brought it to the bank the guy at the bank was just like what am I supposed to do with this uh, so like that like checks haven't really been a thing that exists here for even since before that. Uh, so when you just kind of live in that environment and the standards are really high and there's a lot of really good design and there's a lot of good tech in your mainstream life and you know a lot of startups and all that kind of stuff happening, then it's a it's a really good place to be and you get sort of the first look at all the, the new trends and yeah, I, mm. I I still I still agree with my decision to move here. <laughs> it sounds like you're quite happy there. So beyond your own material um, online, and of course, the book, how do you recommend that those new to design learn about it? I don't think there's any better suggestion than just doing design. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think just find any excuse. If you're at the beginning of the career, anything you can, you can design, you should design. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think design is like trying to learn to play the piano. Like you can't, you can't read about it and get better. You just you have to sit down and do it. So one of the questions I get really often is, uh, how do I get experience? And like, how do you get experience to get your first job? It's that classic, you need a job to get experience and experience to get a job. Um, there's a lot of, UX is pretty, uh, the threshold or the, the, the entry level is really low. You can <clears throat> get in pretty easily. You can have your own website. It's easy and free to do that. Uh, Tumblr lets you write your own code and stuff so you can you can get a theme and then put analytics on it for free it's not even that part and then you can start changing things and trying to see if you can improve your numbers or get traffic and by posting on twitter or instagram or whatever and see what happens and uh, that's that's really easy you can do you can find a, a charity or an agency or whoever and offer to intern for free in exchange then just for them letting you maybe test a few things if you want or um, stuff like that. I think one of the one of the best suggestions is to find an app or just take any app, something famous, Facebook if, or Tinder or whatever you want, uh, and get a bunch of people to, to use it one at a time and just sit next to them and observe and uh, write a list of questions and ask each of them and see what they do and then see if you can find an insight about what might be you know, something that's confusing or something that could be better about that app and then does it like wireframe a solution and then put it together as a PDF and send it to the company and see if you can get them to give you some feedback. I mean, even if they don't give you some feedback, that's a that's a real piece of UX user research. And now mm-hmm. that, that's in your portfolio. So if you just did a couple of those, you'd have more user research in your portfolio than a lot of people with years of experience. Right, right. Well, that's that is self motivated thinking, isn't it? <laughs> it's a great that's a it's a great um, piece of advice, actually. Um, 
So let's talk a little bit about um, people or projects that are grabbing your attention. Is there a topic or folks or projects that you know you you're finding interesting that you're you're looking more into these days? Uh, there, there's a lot. I mean, well, there's like the whole <laughs> tech industry is interesting. UX wise, I think for me, it's anything that involves a shift in behavior or uh, new types of interfaces uh, will often catch my attention. And there's a there's, there have been a few experiments. It's still in the in the lab right now, but there have been a few experiments where uh, research researchers have connected one person's brain with another person's brain. Uh, sometimes only with an iPhone in between, it kind of a an ugly wiry thing on somebody's head, uh, and they are able to send a signal from one person to the other person across the internet, and then so that person A can make person B's arm move without you know, without any real interface between them. But that's, it's still very early, but it gives you a, a, a thought about what it might be like in 15 or 20 years to have person-to-person uh, connections with no no screen as an interface. So that's super interesting. Uh, mm. If you throw in the idea of big data, you know, people working as teams with things on their head, and you know, that, that, that all gets really interesting, and the kind of stuff you could do would be amazing. Uh, so Things like that, or you know, new devices are always interesting. There's a lot going on with uh, virtual reality and augmented reality, and all of those things will kind of meet somewhere in the middle, I'm sure. Then there's also sometime in the next ten years or so, I think it's going to be a lot, a lot more common for economists and designers to either work together or even start merging into some other kind of uh, job. In behavioral economics, is is newish uh, within economics, but those people study the behavior of buying and prices and markets and, and all that kind of stuff, but from a psychological perspective. And UX design is kind of the other side of that, where we are designing uh, people's behavior from a psychological perspective. And, and on, on both sides, uh, though that's sort of the, the new version of design and economics. But um, already the, the senior people on both sides are starting to notice that there's a lot in common. Uh, so I think it's it's really interesting where that might go. And if you combine the idea of uh, behavioral economics and design, you might start getting things where you you have uh, stuff for society being designed. Like, you know, is there a way we could redesign democracy so it works better or uh, mm-hmm. redesign things to redistribute the food? Or can we create incentives based on the way the system is set up so that uh, more people donate organs or whatever? Um all that kind of stuff is super interesting, and I think you know over the next fifty years there will we will go into a I don't know the mindset will be different. We'll be designing the way stuff like an economy works uh, instead of just describing how it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a huge long term topic, but that's I really love that stuff too. Yeah, no, that it's super interesting. I mean, the influence I think that designers have even now. I think some designers are still surprised by it. But I think that there are several several layers deeper to go. Um, well, it, even I mean, today it's not that. Uh, I mean, when you're when you're working on something that's that's kind of small, it's a, it might be a little bit harder to appreciate. But when you work on these something like uh, Twitter that has a hundred hundreds of millions of users and has a part in taking down dictators and, and things like that, I mean, if you're the designer on Twitter, your your choice to include or exclude certain buttons. It multiplied by hundreds of millions of people starts to have a huge mm-hmm. kind of effect. And the internet isn't a real thing. So the people that are designing and coding uh, the internet are are the people building lifestyles in a in a direct way. So it's yeah, sometimes it's hard. It's weird to th- sit back and think about something like uh, 
Candy Crush, which has <laughs> hundreds of millions of users. But like Candy Crush has more users than people in the United States. And when you when you put it next to a reference like that, like Candy Crush as a country is bigger than the US. Is you know the people designing Candy Crush have quite a bit of influence in a, in a very narrow sort of way. But yeah, wow, <laughs> wow, that is a creepy sci-fi movie right there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so talk to me about what you think the next big challenges are for, for designers and design as a discipline. I think that, I think designers are a little too, it's funny just to say this right after the, my candy crush is bigger than the United States comment. Uh, I think that there's a little bit of a problem with, uh, designers being too impressed with ourselves right now. I think that the, uh, the, the level of skill compared to the level of reverence uh, is a big mismatch. Hmm. So uh, there are, I mean, there are some very good UX designers, but if we're talking now as a, as a whole discipline that right now in user experience, there are certain words like empathy or delight that have started to take on this like sacred tone. So that people, when people say empathy, they don't just mean empathy. They, they talk about empathy like it's a, a gift that UX designers have as people and that, you know, without this magical gift of empathy, you are just incapable of doing anything as good as a UX designer could. And delight is the same. Like delight, the way that when people use the word delight, they're usually talking about like thoughtful little details or, or things in the interface that make you smile or make you say wow or whatever. And and those are fine. All of both empathy and delight are good things. Uh, but it's another one that delight is being raised up and has started to be a, a term, like it's a thing that people say, like it has weight. Uh, that you know, you need to delight your users, <laughs> as if that's a powerful idea or something. And when you start to kind of add magic uh, to the meaning of these things. I don't know, you, you start feeling powerful and you stop feeling like you need to really aggressively keep learning. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where we are right now is that uh, there are a lot of people that have called themselves, I've interviewed lots of designers that come in for UX jobs and have literally never once done a UX task. They're, they're UI designers mm-hmm. or, or visual like graphic designers, and they, but they, they think they're UX designers because they have empathy and they like delighting users. Um, and that's a that's a bad mismatch when when UX has so much uh, heat behind it as a as a trend and as an idea, but the skills don't deliver on the other side. So, and it's the danger that that creates is that uh, it's sort of this bullshit cost where mm-hmm. if if enough people talk about enough that kind of stuff in enough ways and it doesn't generate results, then everybody who isn't UX starts to look at UX as a as a, a jargon salesy kind of word uh and the the risk is that uh ux will have the same consequences as a lot of the digital agencies over the last 10 years who did a really good job of selling digital as an idea uh, but as the tools to measure the results of of digital campaigns got better a lot of the clients started to realize that they weren't actually getting as much back as as the salespeople told them they would Uh, and then so there's a a lot of digital agencies have gone out of business or, or you know, the whole industry got weaker uh, just because it, it started to feel like there was a lot of jargon in sales. And UX isn't a lot of jargon in sales unless you're not good at it. And that's what I think is the biggest challenge for us as a discipline is just to, uh, I don't know, get back to basics in a way. And mm-hmm. Just be, be good craftspeople and stop feeling like you are you are a superior type of person because you're a certain kind of designer. doesn't make any sense. 
Mm. So, so on the flip side of that, and this is my last question, what do you think are the most important qualities? Um, obviously, empathy <laughs> and, delight. Um, and delight, right? Um, for for designers to have to be successful. Uh, well, I would say there's there's no such thing as a, a born designer, in my opinion. Uh, I don't think there's one personality type or. Uh, I think creativity is a process. It's not a not a talent. Uh, so in that sense, I think there's no there's no particular skill or quality that makes you a good designer. And it's been shown that uh, diverse teams create the best uh, products and results just because it's more ideas and more different types of experience that get into the mix. So in, in that sense, I would say there is none. Uh, but in a, in a bigger sense, uh, I would say that the, the skills that make you, that would make you successful as a designer are the skills that will make you successful in life or as anything. Um, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm old enough to be dispensing uh, life wisdom just yet. Uh, but it's, they're more sort of general skills that, that help you. We talked earlier about self-motivated thinking. Uh, if the ability to analyze your situation, especially an emotional situation, uh, and then choose a path without having a hundred percent certainty. So choosing an uncertain path and feeling okay with that, uh, mm-hmm. is a skill of its own that is very important in UX and in life. Uh, you know, we, life is full of fuzzy problems. Uh, you have to, you have to pick based on incomplete information. Um, so that, that ability to analyze the situation is what is how you find problem as a, as a UX designer and I, as a designer. And I would say in life, uh, you, you have to look at a problem as something that you want to find because you can't fix problems until you find them. Um, and if you're, if you're discouraged by problems, like most people, then you just problems make you feel down. But instead, I clearly identifying a problem is actually a good thing because then you can work on it. Uh, and then, to, to love the problem-solving process instead of being reactionary uh, about your problems and letting them rule your decisions is a, is a huge thing. So that finding problems and wanting to solve them and then loving the process of solving them, both of those are hard to do, but I think those are both super important skills as a UX designer. Uh, I would say you need to have the ability to say no. <laughs> That's definitely a life skill. But, uh, there are, as a designer, there are, there's so many things you could do. <laughs> and you have to be able to say no, especially to yourself, because there are an infinite number of ideas and most of them won't help you. So you need to know what you're trying to do and say no to everything that isn't going to going to help you get there. And then I think specifically in UX, and this is sort of what the, what the real meaning of empathy is, in my opinion, mm-hmm. uh, is that you need to be able to understand other people as somebody like you, but with totally different experiences and preferences and beliefs that are just as good uh, and that's that's not the way people naturally think we usually uh, another another cognitive bias like the halo effect is uh, attribution bias so uh, mm-hmm. we tend to judge our own actions based on our intentions what we've meant to do and we tend to judge other people based on their personality or what type of whatever we think they are and that's not a fair comparison because other people have intentions just like us. So if our intentions are good, their intentions are good. Um, and we have to learn to think like that. Um, and that means you have to assume your own experiences and your preferences and beliefs are just one possibility among billions of possibilities. And that's a, it's a humbling way to think. And you have to do that almost every day as a UX designer. And I think that it's also helpful in general in life. Hmm. 
That's great. Well, Joel, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. You can reach Joel through his Twitter handle at HipperElement. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the O'Reilly Design Podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn so you never miss an episode. (laughs) 